Welcome to the Nap Time is Sacred podcast, where we inspire busy women to pursue their own interests, passions, and growth. Hey guys, welcome to the Nap Time is Sacred podcast. On today's episode, I want to talk about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is this month of October. Um, and with me, I have a special guest. You guys might know her from my social media when we're talking about radio. Um, this is my co-host, Asil from Radio Azad. Asil, tell us a little bit more about yourself other than our fun little radio show. Assalamualaikum, guys. I know this is such a heavy topic. Um, my name is Asil Rashid. I currently work as a victim's advocate with Mosaic Family Services and have been doing this work for about six years now. Um, it is definitely a passion of mine to work with uh, trauma victims and definitely not one that I chose myself. Um, so a lot. I feel like sometimes, you know, these these paths are chosen for us. And so this is definitely one of those situations. I was born and raised here in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely passionate about what things happen on the state level for, for this type of work. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about Domestic Violence Awareness Month and mm-hmm. how you feel as an advocate about this month and being able to share what you've learned. Right. Um, October is uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It is definitely a month that we look forward to every year because as an advocate, um, a lot of times we are called upon to to do trainings, to increase awareness and raise awareness about domestic violence and locally and internationally. You'll see a lot of times in this month, people wearing the color purple, um, advocating, you know, them or putting themselves out there as advocate to, to increase that awareness. Um, this almost came prime time with what's going on on a national level the conversation that we're having um, within this month. It just it seems crazy to, except not a coincidence at all. SubhanAllah, I feel like these, you know, ha- things happen for a reason. But October is definitely a very busy month for advocates and definitely important that we, we utilize as much of the resources that we can to raise awareness. There's a lot of um, push on a national level to increase policy awareness as well and policy creation on a state level. Especially here in Texas, we have the Texas Council on Family Violence that does a lot of campaigning um, during this month to prepare for new policy campaigns for next year's legislative uh, session in Texas. When you just mentioned legislature, what has it been like to try to pass these laws to help the victims and give them resources? Now, I'm not a public policy expert, but I will say that it goes both ways. It's either we have a lot to be worried about with funding or not. And um, I know typically, so what we have right now is is the VAWA Act, which is the Violence Against Women's Act. That does include even helping men as well. I know of several men who were victims of domestic violence who uh, were able to benefit from that act. Um, this does allow individuals uh, some immigration uh, relief mm-hmm. as part of the act. Um, and w- and since it was since it was approved and enacted into law, uh, it's pretty much been safe mm-hmm. every year. It is coming upon renewal um, where they will be revisiting the act itself and either making updates or deciding to change or remove things from that act. Um, so that's definitely going to be one of the important focuses this year on, on keeping that act. Uh, however, for the most part, it's been safe. What's What has been kind of concerning is the talk surrounding cutting of funding, um, where the potential for uh, agencies to lose their, their federal funding has been 
primarily the more concerning issue. Okay. When we're, um, let's talk a little bit about what is considered domestic violence um, in terms of warning signs, patterns, and things that we should look out for. It really varies by case by case basis. When we talk about domestic violence, I mean, we're talking about anything and everything that can create an unsafe place for a person in their home. And it doesn't just stay in the home. It's something that does kind of come outside of it. So the United States Department of Justice defines uh, domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that could actually include um, not just a partner relationship or a significant other relationship, but even from family. Um, defines domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship. So that would also mean that it could include anyone that's not a partner. Um, it could be family, an uncle or an aunt or a mother-in-law. Um, so this is t- typically a, a wider definition um, mm-hmm. that is used by a partner or rela- relative mm-hmm. to gain or maintain power and control over another partner or okay. relative. Yeah, so it basically it's not what we think <clears throat> when we think domestic violence. We, we assume that it's a spouse or boyfriend and girlfriend situation. From what you're saying, it translates as any member of the family that would be creating an abusive relationship. Because there are very, I mean, even now that we're seeing this this trend, or not trend, but kind of like the changing of the family dynamic, domestic violence, it still applies, whether, you know, we call it domestic violence or intimate partner violence or just gender-based violence. Yeah. It, it all falls under the same violence umbrella. And that violence can manifest in very different ways. So it can be uh, physical, sexual, emotional, economic, psychological, like actions or threats or uh, or threats of action, saying, I'm going to do this. Any threat of going to do something that can influence another person's behavior or create any sense of fear in them of being unsafe or insecure. So that can, can include intimidation, manipulation, isolating them from people, um, making them frightened or terrorizing them, coercing them, blaming them for things that aren't theirs to, to carry, physically hurting them or injuring them as well. Um, one thing... Or a few things that we're seeing more of now, I know with the economic abuse, that's something that people are kind of starting to understand more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also seeing digital abuse or also known as cyberbullying. But digital abuse is, is a big one as well, um, as well as spiritual abuse. And so those two are kind of starting to come to the forefront a little bit more. So let's say um, you're experiencing some sort of domestic violence, be it, um, you know, actual physical violence, intimidation, financial or psychological abuse. What are the slow creeping signs? Because um, generally speaking, the people who are committing these acts of violences are very predatory and they don't just overnight wake up and decide to be um, violent or to create these type of Mm -hmm. domestic violence issues um, within the home or in like bigger society. Um, So what should people look out for? I know you mentioned isolation. Um, What else for people who Mm -hmm. are listening that might not even know that they are in a domestic violence relationship? The thing is, is that uh, a lot of these relationships don't start out in violence. A lot of those signs, um, a lot of the signs that you would typically assume, like when you mentioned the word predatory, you, you assume that it's somebody who kind of outwardly 
you know, has specific behaviors that goes, oh, oh, you know, that's that's domestic violence right there. Or that's somebody who's capable of domestic violence. Yeah. It is so hard to, to determine whether that's something that's going to happen because we frame a lot of relationships as something as it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You know, once you get over that rough patch, then maybe you need to change or be, you'd be better. It takes two. And when we, when we frame relationships like that, we're assuming that we are applying a healthy technique or healthy understanding of relationships to what could potentially be an unhealthy one. So these certain behaviors can tip us off that there's a potential for it, but it may not necessarily mean that there could be domestic violence. And those, some of those warning signs that, you know, we talk about a lot is extreme jealousy. How extreme is this jealousy? Does it mean that you are not allowed to even talk to your father or your family members, that they don't want them to know anything about your relationship? Do they constantly tell you, no, you can only talk to me? Any kind of controlling behavior. Where were you? How long were you there? Who else was there? Any alcohol or drug use or addiction, you know, we're as a community are not immune to these things. And Mm -hmm. when you have excessive usage or addiction to substance abuse or alcohol, it's likely that that could create some of that response. It's important to understand how they get angry. Anger is a completely healthy emotion. We're supposed to have that emotion, but it's explosive anger that we need to look out for. Every every emotion, I, I, I believe, comes on a spectrum. And when you can kind of see where normal anger versus explosive anger is a very big difference. Does that anger threaten your safety and security? That's very important to know. See, is there any isolation from friends and family? Use of force during an argument or are they cruel to animals or children in front of you? A lot of narcissistic personality trait could come into play as well as do they blame other people for their actions and feelings or do they take accountability? Do they have an ability to have compassion and empathy towards others? Those are very important things to notice about a person because of the manipulation and because of the the way that a relationship could be presented to someone you know it, it could be a situation where you you meet someone who really needs to have you in their life mm-hmm. um, or you're there to help make them better or you're you are the person who can save them from themselves and it's a very unhealthy emotional dynamic and a very unhealthy emotional balance. It can seem so utterly romantic. And it's important to be careful when those things come into play. It's important because it can be very, very manipulative. And you almost get tied in this web of neediness and web of extreme like dependency on that individual. Um, or even even extreme uh, sense of uh, needing to be there for them. Like yeah, the it's, it's I can fix it. Um, my love can mm-hmm. fix like this behavior. Or if I was if I was a better wife or a better girlfriend or a better daughter mm-hmm. or daughter-in-law, whatever the case mm-hmm. might be, that this situation will fix itself mm-hmm. and I'm the one who needs to work on myself. Yeah. And a lot of times when, when someone is um, is you know presented with a, a relationship, especially if there are narcissistic personality traits, they, there is some, some level of security. Security, 
that is found in, in feeling like I'm around somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And we have to really be careful about our own emotional state when seeking relationships and, and just be not careful, but aware. In the work that I do, many people have told me that I never saw it from the beginning. And you won't. It's true. You won't because a lot of it is this almost priming as a normal relationship mm -hmm. or what's expected of a normal relationship. Yeah. And for the most part, it does start off as a normal relationship. There's something that we typically look at whenever we're educating clients or educating individuals to help, to help them identify if they are in a domestic violence situation is that it can start from just verbal and emotional, which is like name calling, criticizing, ignoring, yelling. It could escalate to, to unwanted touching or name calling or accusations and then physical abuse as well, like pushing, slapping or throwing objects. Perhaps there may be even a use of a weapon involved. And it doesn't have to be just one or, or two of those things. It could be all of them as well. It just varies on the situation. Mm -hmm. They usually kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but they start off and try to see your limitations. They can feel like they can get away with. So it'd be like, you know, putting you down or being disapproving of who your friends are or... Um, you know, you're not allowed to go here, you're not allowed to go there, locking you out of the house when you go out late. Those type of situations are some things that we commonly hear about. Um, from what I understand in our community, we glamorize that like, oh my God, he loves me so much. He doesn't want me to go out at late at night or he loves me so much that he wants to protect me from like, you know, bad friends or things like that. We kind of rationalize this with this kind of like really masculine protector, like, oh, he just wants what's best for me. He loves me so much when the person is really just abusing you. It is an abuse of power. And I think that's one of the things that what, that gets so confusing about all this is that there is love tied into it. Mm -hmm. There is love. And we can't separate that from this, like, this imagery of, you know, rough, hateful, predatory individual. There is love there. It's just that they're using a lot of power to wrap that love in it. Like, it's like, think about it as love laced with power. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's why it gets so confusing for someone who is victimized by a um, an abuser is because they will often think back to the happy moment that they've had, the good moments that they have in their relationship and feel that, that they can get to that point again. And so what happens is that you have an individual who's emotionally tied to those great moments um, and just had these, what they would typically do is minimize these small falls from grace. And these falls from grace are not really small. They're huge and they impact them so much because what ends up happening is you have this emotional roller coaster or this emotional whiplash of going back and forth and back and forth that it, it, it really wears down the emotional response of an individual. Neurologically speaking, you have a response in our systems that's fight or flight. And when you are traumatized, your brain sort of overrides that whole response system and you freeze. And the level of trauma, the number of times that your body has to go through that freeze response where you sit and don't do anything where that's often where we get that myth where they allowed it to happen you know this freeze response is kind of like kind of out of body experience that people have it kind of contributes to that whole myth about it but we we do not really quite understand 
how that trauma affects the decision-making of someone who is victimized by a perpetrator. But we also don't understand their neurological or like even the the trait and the thinking of an abuser as well. I mean, they know it is a logical choice and a logical decision. And it's not an emotional one at all. And the reason being is a lot of times we look at violence as a drug. When you're addicted to power, you will do anything to stay in power. It's almost like the individual who is victimized is like the object of obsession. Mm -hmm. It's the object of addiction. And which is why when an individual tries to leave that web of violence or that web of emotional, emotional and psychological abuse, it becomes even more dangerous for them to leave because once they leave, the potential for fatality increases quite highly. Yeah. So let's um, talk about that a little bit. Well, I was just reading that more than 70% of domestic violence victims are in some way harmed, whether they're killed by their partner or stalked or long-term just harassed by this person after they leave. How do you, as an advocate, as a supporter of um, these victims, what is your advice for them on how to leave safely? What preparations mm -hmm. do they need to make? Um, where should they seek help from? And what's the best case scenario for them to, to be able to leave safely? I am definitely an advocate for survivor first. And survivor the survivor first model essentially places the, the victim at that time, the victim hoping to turn into survivor in the driver's seat. And essentially what that means is that you know, and, and going back to your, your, your the statistic that you just stated or quoted, um, I totally believe that because anytime someone is victimized, when they identify and are aware at that point, oh my gosh, this means I'm a victim or I am, this is my situation. When, when that moment of realization happens, um, it can take anywhere between seven to eight times for an individual to officially leave. And there's many reasons for why they don't leave automatically because again, many of the types of abuses, it could be a compounded situation where there's several types of abuse going on, but that, you know, for sure there are probably that many times and that percentage, you know, does increase that highly when that situation, you know, happens when they do finally decide to leave. Because mm -hmm. at um, times they're, so, they're limiting the amount of resources that you have that you're able to leave. So you might not have a phone that you're mm -hmm. able to use. You might not have enough cash on hand to get far. You know, you might be, they might follow you everywhere. You don't even know. So you're put in that position where you don't know when is a good time to make your exit safely. Now the burden, and, and you're, you're very right, the burden of cost for, for, the, for a person's freedom mm -hmm. does fall on the victim. And so it's almost like, okay, well, if I want my freedom, it has to come out of my pocket. Mm -hmm. Almost always they are going to then be responsible for housing costs for, you know, just living, basic living expenses, children. And when they're seen that you can't take care of your children, they lose not just financially, but even lose children as well. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of reason to not leave. You're safer, somewhat quote unquote safer, or at least you know what to expect when you're under that roof, because you can figure out how to dance around that behavior, but not, maybe not your children when you have to feed them on your own. But when you talk about the safely leave, Leaving, there is really no such thing as safely leaving because of how unexpected someone's behavior may be. A woman or a man will not know to what extent a person may take their level of power and control. And so, and especially if there's a weapon involved or if someone is allowed to, uh, to own a weapon, 
whether it's legally or illegally, if there's a weapon or any anything that could be made a weapon in the home, it could increase their, their risk of fatality quite highly. As far as safely leaving, it's so important that the survivor decides what's best for them and what could be the safest route. An advocate would be able to help a victim go through all the potential scenarios based off of their situation uh, to see whether they are ready to leave or not. We don't decide for them. It's allowing them that control to make decisions for themselves and to learn to trust that themselves again. And so if they, you know, are not quite ready, or maybe now's not the right time. That's okay. We'll wait until next time. Or what can you do now in creating a safety plan that'll help you get from where you are now to help you maybe be more ready to leave later? Does that mean that maybe one more year of work will help you? Does that mean that uh, waiting until your child is 17 where they could then be legally emancipated? You know, there's certain things that a person may, may take into consideration or need to take into consideration and maybe talking to an advocate would help. But it just depends on everybody's, it's like a case-by-case scenario. Mm, it's not know? like we see on TV where it's an automatic, you make a run for it kind of situation. It's not the... It's no, it's not, it's the, not glamorous. the Hollywood version. Yeah, it's not the Hollywood version of, you know, um, pack your bags, learn how to box um, mm. and make your way for the door, accidentally killing your husband. It's not to say that those things don't happen, but it's just not really that way. Oftentimes, you know, a perpetrator will assume the nice guy, the upstanding citizen role, constantly a character assassinating um, their victim. And again, it goes back to that whole, they, they still do love them. It's so hard for people to understand, but they still do love their victim. It's just their love is way too obsessive and way too much to the point that it actually causes harm more than it does create security. And they don't see what they're doing wrong. That's the whole part of the whole narcissistic personality traits that kind of come into play. And because of that, there may be those moments where a victim will say, but I need to help him recover or help her recover from this. Because, you know, after a situation where things get really bad, it's like, help me. I promise this won't happen again. I can't believe I even did this to you. I didn't see it coming. I didn't even know that I was capable of doing this. That kind of creates that sense of let me help them through this too, because they're hurting too. I think one thing that we have to do as a community uh, is to remove the shame that a lot of people carry or place upon other people for making decisions that are otherwise seen as selfish. Like you're not thinking about your family, you're only thinking about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a situation where somebody's body, somebody's person is in danger and even emotionally in danger, because I definitely think that words are as violent as a physical assault. If a person's soul is in danger of being worn down to the point where their purpose no longer matters anymore, that's just as violent and just as worthy of repair and worthy of recovery as the person who is struggling with their own narcissism. And so for someone to be able to separate themselves and recognize their self-worth and recognize that they don't want to be in that kind of situation anymore, that it is okay to choose you over someone else until that person decides that they're ready to be changed. And so it's very difficult. Speaking of difficult, earlier you had mentioned when it was 
with regards to legislature, um, the immigrant aspect of it or the undocumented victim, what kind of recourse, what kind of help or if any, is there for that person who has another layer of another block when it comes to getting help or even being able to ask for help because they don't know who to go to, who's going to report them. The person who's abusing them is threatening to report them. Is there any way for them to get help? Yeah, the the immigration issue, especially coming to the forefront now with this new presidency and this new administration, it has definitely created a lot more fear for victims and has definitely put a lot more power in the hands of abusers. And so right now, there are protections for individuals who are victims of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. It is not a guarantee. Certain systems and agencies are not supposed to report. I'm not saying that they won't, but it's so important to know who is trusted and who isn't and to speak to those trusted agencies. Ours is a trusted agency, uh, Mosaic Family Services. Uh, I know that law enforcement has also stated that they are not going to report when a victim reports a violent crime. Um, But it's kind of like one of those situations where it's so important that despite all of that, there are specific safety plans in place and safety considerations have in place in order to lessen the potential emotional re-traumatization of a victim if they were to be reported on. There is no telling what an abuser can do um, to continuously remind their victim that they're the ones in charge. So speaking to an advocate can help. The immigration relief is still available. That has not changed, but a victim can be protected legally if they do report to trusted resources. Um, Let's talk a little bit about our own community, which is a Muslim community. How do we make safe spaces for victims? Um, I had mentioned um, earlier when we were speaking about whether that means a place for them to be able to come and stay safely that has resources for them, whether it's being able to get the help from your community leaders or even to be vocal about this issue altogether um, instead of feeling like the community is putting it on the back burner. One thing that I stress over and over again is abuse of power as it manifests itself in domestic violence and gender-based violence and intimate partner violence, that it thrives in silence. And so the, the more and more we keep calling this a issue of the home, that's something that it's a private matter, it will continue to thrive in that silence. And I know that in this you know recent couple of weeks, our community has had this kind of battle between, well, do I speak up? about somebody's sins or do I or do I or do I speak out against injustice and this choice of whether am I wrong either way or right either way like you just never you know how to kind of manage that the one thing that I that I would say to that is that domestic violence and the home unit is the most basic unit of the fabric of our society and we have the hadith you know that talks about that the Muslim ummah is a body and when one part of it is is ailing we have to try to help heal it. And so if our most basic unit of, of our fabric, of our ummah, is hurting, that's an injustice to all, the whole ummah. And so we have to start making this conversation that's hard. I'm not saying normalize it, but let's let's have the hard conversations. Let's dig our hands, you know, get our hands dirty with, with, what's, with this problem that we've constantly been trying to, you know, push under the rug. 
I don't blame anyone. I just think that it's uncomfortable. It's a completely uncomfortable conversation to have. But ways that we can try to help alleviate that is one, to stop not talking about it, right? We have to start bringing this to, uh, this conversation to the surface. Two, we have to be careful about the words that we're using in our chutzpahs, in our uh, community centers, in our mosques, that like being, being again, survivor first is being aware of the, the wording that we're using, the language that we're using that could potentially provide a victim or somebody who is going through this situation with basically providing them what they need to know about how somebody may react, like if they were to report. So we have to be careful of our language that we have in our centers and the language that we use. Is it something that that suggests that we are a safe place or is it something that kind of undermines and minimizes a victim's experience? That could include things like wife jokes. Like if your place of worship constantly uses jokes about the wife in the kitchen or, um, you know, the man not not having a backbone, for example, those jokes are not really conducive to a healthy relationship environment. So words like that can instruct someone who is a potential victim that this is not a safe place for me to come and talk about my situation. Right. And also, uh, one of the things that I was reading in preparation for this talk was that domestic violence is not solely a woman's issue. It's a man's issue. So how do we normalize positive discussions or the ability for a man to stand up and say, you know what, that is inappropriate. Those kind of jokes are inappropriate. That type of behavior is inappropriate. How do we get them to be able to do what they should be doing, which is be an advocate for the woman in society to understand that she hasn't caused her abuse, that the abuser is the one that is supposed to be held accountable? One thing that I find so, so mind boggling is that, you know, as a community, we are so hell bent to stop oppressors, you know, anyone who's a dictator of a country that is, um, you know, uh, creating war and wreaking havoc upon their own country, that we will go out in droves to protest and to petition and demonstrate and protest these dictators and, and their behavior. But when it comes to oppressors of the home, we're, we fall silent. And Jackson Katz uh, is an amazing, amazing writer and, and, and um, very passionate male advocate um, who talks about this situation is not a woman's issue. It is a male issue. Um, and it's one that men have not really talked about very much because it is, again, like I said, it's, it's a hard situation. And we in our community cannot have this conversation without discussing male privilege. Yes, we do have men in our community who have male privilege. Even as a Muslim man, you have male privilege. You are in the gender that has the privilege to be able to, to maneuver and to move around in society, to move around in our community without question. Um, whereas women are often checked at the door, even at the doors of our mosque about what they're doing there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we, you know, whether it's access to education or access to, you know, um, our spiritual spaces, it's important to have that conversation. 
whatever can make men have a more comfortable conversation about this would be helpful because men who do stand up are ostracized. Men who do speak out against domestic violence and against rape culture and against misogyny do get often get ostracized. They're not shown healthy, healthy mentors. They're not shown healthy examples of relationships or healthy examples of what it means to be a man. And so even across the globe, we're having this redefinition of this hypermasculinity that Jackson Katz talks about in his book, The Macho Paradox, that really the whole ideal of what it means to be a man has changed. And now we're having to have this like conversation about taking it back a notch. The idea of conquest and the idea of ownership has really, really become this cornerstone of the male identity. Mm-hmm. And it's what these days is known as the bro culture, mm-hmm. where everything is just all about them, their wants, their needs, their desires. And But how do we get um, the leadership, even when it's detrimental to their own mm-hmm. career, um, to be able to talk about them? Mm-hmm. Um, it really... I think it, it really all depends, you know, on, you know, when we're talking about specific situations, there really is no avoiding um, these things from happening. Someone who believes that they were right all along is going to do everything in their power to continue to maintain their power all the way until the very end of it. Our leaders in our community, you know, will have to take necessary steps or what I would call necessary sacrifices for the greater good. There really is no way to avoid those sacrifices. There's that quote, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Anyone who does take a stand will have to lose something. I can guarantee they won't lose as much as a victim who has lost everything. Um, however, it, you know, I still consider it like a necessary sacrifice, whether that is social standing to some extent or respect of the male community. One thing that I would highly recommend for our leadership is to seek out a support system of individuals who have done this and gone through it. Um, if you are an imam, maybe find a pastor who has successfully been able to engage the men in their congregation. If you are a student in college, seek out a group that has successfully engaged young men in their journey of you know, becoming successful men and healthy men, emotionally healthy men, and lend your support to that, but also learn from that. That's one thing that I would suggest is even for people to encourage their their leadership to, to, to go to trainings, to understand this, and to continuously hold them accountable. Accountability is not a bad thing. I know that sometimes we, you know, when we say the word hold accountable, it's like, what? What are you talking about? It kind of sounds heavy, but holding accountable just means consistently asking, what more can we potentially do? What more can we include here? Reach out to individuals who are doing the work and ask them where they could fit in. A lot of what we can do to help support each other is collaboration. You know, again, reaching out, like we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we definitely reach out to people who have done it before and who have successfully made spaces for men to talk about their emotions and to talk about their struggles. It's it's almost like taboo for a man to talk about, I'm, I'm struggling with this or that. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's the, an the, addiction or an, like an act of violence that was done to them as well. Yes. So when we do create those safe spaces, yes, we are going to be creating safe spaces for both men and women, but it should never come at the cost of a victim. Regardless of whether someone who was a perpetrator had been victimized before, it's like that. It doesn't take away from the current victim. Exactly. And it's an explanation. It's not at all an excuse. And so we still have to hold people accountable. 
Let's talk about um, the more intimate relationships. How, as family members and as friends, how can we um, help someone who is going mm-hmm. through a domestic violence situation? One thing that I feel was so important um, that I learned from Leslie Morgan Steiner, she was um, a victim herself. She's currently a survivor of, of her situation. Um, she wrote a book called Crazy Love. And I met her actually at one of the conferences that I got to, to be at. Uh, it's called the Conference on Crimes Against Women um, here in Dallas. And she mentioned that even going through her own situation, that the best thing that a person can do is to be there and just listen. Because going through her situation, she was often isolated from individuals from hearing their response. Like, you need to leave him or, you know, he can't keep treating you like this. You're worth more. But then when you say stuff like that and a year goes by and that person's still not ready, it's like, I don't know what else to tell you. You're not listening to me. But then how is that any different from the person who's, you know, the perpetrator who is imposing their opinion of what they should and can or should, could, you know, do and abusing them in that way. It sounds very powerful and controlling as well. And so it's super important that you're supportive no matter what they decide. Mm-hmm. It's super important that they are that they maintain some level of self-control and and trust in themselves to continue to make their right decision. Mm-hmm. It's and almost like swallowing the bitter pill. Yeah. Like, I don't like that you're in this situation, but I love you anyways, and I'm here for you no matter what. And even saying, wow, he really does love you, just to make sure that they know that you're on their side. Because a lot of times, the you know an abuser may try to tell you, oh, you know, you're such and such, like your relative doesn't like me. And so when they say, when someone comes up to you or that relative comes up to you and says something like, I don't really, I'm not really feeling his energy or her energy or something about them is off. Mm -hmm. Then you start to go, he was right. You don't like them, you know? Um, And why don't you like them? And then they kind of go into this defensive mode to to kind of like Mm -hmm. help the emotional purity of their partner. So it's, it's very important that we're there no matter what and not to start telling them what to do um, as family members, but to continuously be a support system. Anyone who has a strong support system will have an easier time, somewhat relatively easier time getting out of their situation. So to end this discussion, what is a great resource for people who want to learn more or a a victim who is looking to get out of a domestic violence situation? Sure. Um, The number one resource that a lot of times gets shared is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Uh, that number is 1-800-799-7233. Um, that is a number that can be called uh, to talk to someone, to you know, ask questions about was this situation abuse? Am I in an abusive relationship? Or if you are already, if you are, have already recognized that you are in that kind of relationship, um, then to further help you with finding resources. Um, locally in the Dallas area, we have, uh, several, several, um, agencies, I think over 22 shelters for, for battered women and children. Uh, and recently, um, a male shelter, a shelter for male victims of domestic violence, 
um, and their families. Um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline online um, at www.thehotline.org allows someone to chat with somebody if they can't speak out loud. Um, and that's 24-7, um, 365 every day of the year. Um, all of them are completely, completely confidential. However, if you are on these websites, it's so important to be careful with any kind of tracking. You can always X out. There's an escape button to get out of those uh, websites, and they usually don't save online, especially if there's any kind of tracking of your you know, technology usage. You can always go to police department or a place of worship or um, a um, hospital if you're wanting to get help. Um, locally, we have Texas Muslim Women's Foundation, as well as uh, Mosaic Family Services that do serve women from multicultural backgrounds. Another great resource that I have come across online is the Asian Pacific Institute for Gender-Based Violence, and they um, are on gender-based violence. They are a great resource that has a plethora of information regarding domestic violence and gender-based violence. Thing is, is there's so many intersections of violence that can occur to someone. And so it's important to recognize that all of those violences still fall under violence against women. And because the majority of women are victimized and the majority of perpetrators are men. However, it can flip. And the thing is, is that regardless of that, there's still no balance there. There's still a majority of women being victimized. And so this agency covers a lot of those those issues and talks about that. Um, so the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence is a really important one um, that will talk about all the different types of traumas that a person can go through. But I think at the end of the day, your support system is going to be your first resource that you reach out to when you're going through something like this. So having a strong support system, or if you don't have one, finding one um, to help you through it. Because that daunting idea of you going through this alone is more likely to, to keep you where you're at. Thank you so much, Asil. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this really difficult topic, but um, hopefully a topic that we as a community can normalize this discussion and be supportive of victims who, inshallah, one day will become survivors. Inshallah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information, make sure to visit our website at naptimeissacred.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review.